0: Let's go ahead and pray as we come to our time in God's word. Father in heaven, how gracious you are, how loving you are, how just very kind you are. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for giving us a savior in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word that we now open, that we now want to learn from, that we want to see play out in our lives, we pray that you will help us to do just that by way of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in your Son Jesus' name, amen. One of the U.S. uh, prosecutors' offices in the United States writes this on their website, about how to be a good witness. Quote, As a witness, you have an important job to do. For a jury or a judge, to make a wise decision, all of the evidence must be presented in a truthful manner. You already know that you take an oath in court to tell nothing but the truth. We want you to tell the truth. That's in all caps. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. The manner in which you testify, however, will affect the judge and jury's perception of your truthfulness. If you are halting or stumbling, hesitant, arrogant, or inaccurate, the judge and jury may doubt that you are telling all the facts in a truthful way. The witness who is confident and straightforward will make the court and the jury have more faith in what he or she is saying. End quote. This is affirmed. By an article from Forbes magazine titled, How to Be a Perfect Witness in Court. They write, quote, Whether you are the witness in your own trial or called to testify on behalf of another, it is vital to the case that your testimony come across as credible. Without credible witnesses, the case just quickly falls apart. So what makes a credible witness? A credible witness is a witness who comes across as competent, and worthy of belief. The witness's testimony is assumed to be more than likely true due to his or her experience, knowledge, training, and sense of honesty. The judge and jurors will use these factors and their own experience to determine whether they believe if the witness is credible. Well, this morning, friends, we will again hear from The defense's star witness, John the Baptist, as he gives some of the Jewish leaders the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help him, God. Please turn in your Bibles to John, chapter 1, verse 19. Last week... um, was that tremendous section, verses 14 to 18, that begins, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, where we saw six more characteristics of Jesus as the Word. We saw the humanity of the Word and the glory of the Word, the grace and truth of the Word, the ranking of the Word, the fullness of the Word, and the role of of the word. Now, in our text this morning, John kind of takes a bit of a shift here again. And John the Baptist <clears throat> is again called to the stand. This time to answer the questions of the Jewish priests, Levites, and Pharisees sent from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. If you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. This is from John chapter 1. Verses 19 to 28. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, friends, right off the bat, we only have two points in today's sermon. No, that doesn't mean we're going to be done any quicker, but we have two points. And it's two questions that we see asked here in the text. And the first question is this, and it's our first point. Who are you? Who are you? And this is from verses 19 to 23. Again, back in verse 19 we read, this is the testimony of John meaning John the Baptist, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now we have to set the stage here a bit because a lot has actually already happened regarding John the Baptist that we see from the other three Gospels. And by the way, I, I'm going to work hard at referring to him today as the Baptist so that we don't get him confused with John the gospel writer. Okay, First, we return to Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. You might remember that's way back in the beginning when the angel Gabriel told John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, a few choice nuggets about his son-to-be, saying, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb... And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then, of course, the Baptist is born and he grows up. And now he's... 30 years old when all three synoptic gospels tell us that he came on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now just a few other tidbits uh, about the Baptist. He and Jesus are indeed somehow related. Possibly cousins as Mary and Elizabeth are said to be relatives back in Luke 1 verse 36. In Luke 3 and verse 2 tells us that the word of God came to the Baptist. So we know, okay, he's a prophet. We also like to say... Um, at times that well you know that john the baptist he was one of our earliest hippies he was having lived in the deserts and he ministered in the wilderness of judea in the jordan river region he wore a garment of camel's hair with the leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey now the wild honey part i don't think too many of us have a problem with right the locust thing, that's where we have a little bit of a problem, right? Uh, although I was uh, getting some confirmation two years ago at our family camp. Somebody brought, um, brought dried crickets, and the kids ate them. They did. They at least tried them. i got to give them credit. <clears throat> now, we laugh about you know, John the Baptist being a, a hippie. But in all seriousness, what was one of the most predominant characteristics of a hippie back in uh, you know, the U.S. 1960s, early 70s? They were against the establishment. <coughs> this fits John the Baptist perfectly. He was against the Jewish religious establishment of his day. He was opposite of the Jewish leadership who lived in the <coughs> excuse me the city of Jerusalem. And, and they frequented the temple, and they cared very much about their appearance and what people thought of them. John, of course, stayed away from the city and the temple. He didn't care what he wore, and he certainly didn't care what people thought of him. And he ministered in the humblest of places and conditions. And I think to myself, no doubt, God was making a statement through John. John was challenging The hypocritical Jewish legalism of the day, which he was untouched and unpolluted by. In this sense, John was that that salmon swimming upstream against the Jews' religious practices of the day. And he would challenge other Jews to remove themselves from the legalistic deadness that their religion had become. It's helpful to know that when this this delegation shows up in our text, the following things have already happened. All right? And we, we know this because of the other gospels. So at this point in time, all of these things that I'm going to mention to you have already taken place. The Baptist has already been out there calling people to repentance and baptism in preparation for the coming Messiah. And when he did so, many people started showing up, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two religious groups showed up, the text tells us, the scriptures tell us, for baptism, to be baptized. However, John kind of, the Baptist, you know, kind of uh, uh, halts them, addresses them in no uncertain terms. You remember what he called them? A brood of vipers. A brood of vipers challenging them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He knew their wicked hearts. He knew their legalism. He knew their greed. So, boom, he just goes after them. Now, you can imagine how this just must have endeared the Jewish leaders to John, right? I mean, they just it all over him. Yeah, right. Not, not even close. So, right off the bat, we see that the Baptist here is not making any friends amongst the Jewish leadership nor did he mean to. Furthermore, the Baptist has given us more information. He's given the people more information about the Messiah and how he will come after the Baptist, even baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. We will talk more about that next week. And then Jesus shows up. He's baptized by John, followed by this public proclamation by god the father then after this jesus is led out into the desert by the holy spirit to be tempted by the devil the baptist has now moved west from the region of the jordan river to the town of bethany just outside of jerusalem you might remember that bethany is, is where jesus's friends mary martha and lazarus lived So all of those things have now already happened, taken place when we get to our text this morning. Let's just talk for a minute about this delegation that shows up. In returning to our text of John 1 and verse 19, we have the Jews who sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now the context indicates that the Jews, the Jewish leaders... Most likely those of the Sanhedrin, the supreme judicial council who have then sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Now since the, the leadership was interested in what John was doing regarding these ritualistic washings, a.k.a. these baptisms, and since the Sanhedrin was primarily controlled by the high priest and his Family who happened to be Sadducees at the time, it was not unusual that it would be then priests and Levites sent out to investigate the Baptist. Being a priest and Levite was a full time vocational job that fulfilled a variety of essential religious duties and were equivalent, approximately, to say the clergy of our modern times. Levites were, of course, from the tribe of Levi and assisted especially in temple worship and as musicians. As we will see in verse 24, then we also have the introduction of the Pharisees and the fact that they also played a part in this delegation. And again, their question for the Baptist was simple. Who are you? Now what's behind this question, friends, is the fact that, that here you have this 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 fella the strange guy shows up out of the blue looking very strange looking very anti-establishment he starts calling the Jews to repent to have their sins forgiven to be baptized by him and his disciples and then he's 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 spouting off this stuff about Messianic prophecies and him preparing the way for the Lord. He also calls out the Jewish leadership for their hypocrisy. Jesus, of course, shows up. He gets baptized by John. And and there are these crazy stories that get back to the home office there in Jerusalem about people seeing heaven open up. And and something like a dove descending upon this man, Jesus, followed by this booming voice out of heaven, presumably God, speaking about the fact that this is his son and how pleased with him he is. The Sanhedrin are like, yeah. We need to dispatch some priests and Levites pronto to find out who this character really is. And especially if he's. Claiming to be some kind of prophetic leader. Like maybe even the Messiah. In their minds. So in answer to their question. The Baptist replies. <clears throat> verse 20. And he confessed. And did not deny. But confessed. I Am not the Christ? It's kind of interesting, how he doesn't start out by really answering their question and saying who he is. Rather, he tells them what or who he is not. He's anticipating what the leadership was already thinking in their minds, wondering in their minds: Is he possibly the Messiah? Of course, in their minds, probably followed by: No, no way, this guy's the Messiah. Certainly not. But the Baptist confesses, admits, agrees with them as to who he is not. I am not the Christ, Christos, the anointed in the New Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament. The one set apart by God who would come to rescue the nation of Israel from all her enemies and reign over her forever. In confessing and not denying, the Baptist is actually making clear his positive witness as to the true Christ. Now, we might imagine at this point the priests and the Levites kind of circling up, having a little confab amongst themselves. Okay, he says he's not the Christ. So who is he? Who is he? Who, what... What are we going to ask him next? What, what are we going to say? What, what? So they ask him, What then? Are you Elijah? You think, well, why would they think he might be Elijah? Now, it's true. Right off the, the bat, uh, you know, on the surface there, um, Elijah and the Baptist might seem to have some similarities. Back in 2 Kings eight, it describes Elijah as a hairy man. With a leather girdle about his loins. We would presume that John is probably at least hairy in the beard department and his long hair. Um, if he's been out in the wilderness the way that he has. And while the Baptist was calling people to repentance and avoid judgment. This is likewise what the prophet previously had also done. Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. So just back up to the left there. In the last book of the New Testament Malachi chapter 3. 3. Here, the Lord, through the prophet, is sharing some of the things to come, including the Messiah and even the messenger before him. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, said the Lord of hosts. Now, jump over to chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Where God says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, we think of that in that end times context, right? We learn, though, also from our own missionary to the Jews, Marty Wolf, that even Jews today leave an empty seat at the Passover Seder table anticipating Elijah's return. You might be pleased to know that we will indeed have another Passover Seder uh, when we get closer to Resurrection Sunday that Marty will lead. Look at verse 6, Malachi 4. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Huh. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. You might be reminded earlier, what we read earlier, what the angel Gabriel said to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Furthermore, Matthew 11, 14, 17, 12, and Mark 9, 13, Jesus himself explicitly identifies John the Baptist as Elijah having come. Matthew 11, verse 14 is Jesus speaking to the crowds about the Baptist saying, And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. You think, oh, well, okay. Well, there you have it. They, they got it, right? The guy's Elijah. Survey says, eh. the Baptist answer, and he said, I am not. Okay, so now, now us sitting here today are probably, you're probably thinking, uh, time out, time out, time out. What's going on here? Because yeah, how, how does this work? Jesus says he is, he says he's not, and That's one of the interpretive challenges uh, that we talked about back at the beginning of the book of John. The fact is the Baptist was responding in the way he knew they meant. This delegation questioning him. He knew exactly who he was. And though he may be like Elijah or identified as Elijah by Jesus on down the line, he didn't necessarily know that 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 was going to happen or what Jesus would say about him he understands that no I am literally not Elijah having returned to earth from heaven in the end times the Baptist here is really what we would call more of a type of Elijah or back in Luke 117 says coming in the spirit and power of Elijah Uh, a type it's just someone or something that prefigures or looks ahead, points ahead to someone or something else. And while Jesus acknowledged the Baptist as figuratively being Elijah, again, the Baptist didn't necessarily know that Jesus was going to do that. And of course, Jesus knows things about all of us, and in this case about the Baptist, that the Baptist doesn't know. And so Jesus confers upon him this this, this title of, of really his true significance. Now we would imagine uh, the confab, the, I mean the, uh, the delegation kind of circling up again and having another confab. Okay, so he's not the Christ. Okay, so he says he's not Elijah. Who do we go to next? Who do we think he is? Who's going to ask him the next question? And finally they say, are you the prophet? Turn to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 back at the beginning. Fifth book of the Bible Deuteronomy 18. Of course this is Moses on the plains of Moab with Israel there in front of him getting ready to go into the promised land. He is going back and he's going over everything they had learned and, and reiterating the law to them, all the things that God had told them, even going back to uh, the mount, uh, mountain and Mount Sinai and, and, and giving it to them in this one big, uh, long preaching session. And in Deuteronomy 18, look at verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Again, this is Moses talking. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now friends, you have to understand and I'll show you why the prophet and the Messiah were one and the same. In both John 6:14 and John 7:40, the Jewish people are wondering if Jesus is this prophet. But we have our answer in Acts 3, to 23 when Peter explicitly identifies the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 as being, quote, Jesus the Christ appointed for you, end quote. Stephen does the same thing in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, using again Deuteronomy 18 in identifying Jesus as this prophet. Saying, and he... Um, Uh, As as the the prophet, sorry. When the Baptist was asked about being the prophet, and he answered, no. Now, at this point, you can imagine the frustration of this delegation because they know they can't return to the home office without more details than a bunch of denials. They've got to get to the bottom of this. So they they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, and here the Baptist applies, Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 3, to himself, which the other, other gospels also do in a number of places. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said. Well, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 40, gang. Isaiah chapter 40, right there in the middle of your Bibles. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, verse 3. And I want you to... This is a really cool passage. I want you to, to, to just see this, this awesome connection... Between how the Baptist uses this verse in answering their question about his role and the verse given in its original context. Because, well, let's just read it. Isaiah 40, verse 3 reads this. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Now, what's going on here is the future return of God's people from their exile to Babylon. God will punish their sin by enslaving them to the Chaldeans for some 70 years. But then the punishment will be over and they will be comforted this is that familiar part if you were to go back to chapter 40 verse 1 comfort oh comfort my people says your god speak kindly to jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the lord's hand double for all her sins And then at this point, God will start returning the people to their beloved home of Jerusalem. So then in chapter 40, verse 3 and following, God is is metaphorically um, calling for road and land improvements. Get Caltrans out here, right? Let's get things shaped up. As they make their way back, travel back, returning to their city In a smooth and easy fashion. Now this is also called a type. In that it is something that prefigures and points ahead to someone or something else. The people's return to Jerusalem was made straight. And now the way for the Lord is made straight as God's children are called to return to him. By the Baptist. And what's interesting is that the Lord will continue to make the path straight for us to return to him. Through what the suffering servant will do in Isaiah 53. Followed even by the climax when we are eternally returned to our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. As we read in Isaiah 65 and 66. And I just, you know, you think, it's too bad. It's too bad the leadership was just so blinded, you know, that they, they, they couldn't even remember or didn't remember or, or denied how the Baptist, John the Baptist, was born. And prophecy given by the angel Gabriel to the, the Baptist's father, Zacharias, there in the temple. I mean, this is something that that would have been passed down. Even 30 years later, they should have known and remembered. When the angel said to him, and you, child, or Zacharias, excuse me, this is now Zacharias' prophecy about his own son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. They were just, like he said, just over their head, oblivious or in denial. Well, this brings us to our second question. Our second question, which is simply, why are you baptizing? We see this again in verses 24 to 28. Look at verse 24. Now they, oh, we got to go back to John. Sorry, back to John. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And while the priests and Levites were sent by the Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin is is the Jewish council made up of, you had Sadducees and you had Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and priests and all of these different people. As it happens, most priests and Levites belonged to the party of the Sadducees, but the Sadducees, you might say that they were kind of the religious liberals of the Sanhedrin, and 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 probably wouldn't have been nearly concerned with this baptizer guy than uh, to, to to really pay maybe a whole lot of attention. The Pharisees, however, being the ultra conservative law keepers that they were, would have been all over this, and so it is. Uh, it's likely that they were there kind of pushing for this delegation and no doubt would have sent some of their own representatives along with the priests and the Levites. And I think it's them at this point in verse 25 that asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now we don't, we don't want to read too much into this, it would be easy to do so and to, to see this as, as kind of turning into an interrogation versus him, them simply asking these questions. However, when the religious establishment, especially the Pharisees, they see someone out there, though, looking the way he does, without their permission, calling people to repentance, publicly baptizing them, you know, basically in their minds, this, this guy's kind of going rogue here. And remember, too, he, he's already called them a brood of vipers, and now he's denied that he's one of the big three, Christ, Elijah, prophet. They're probably starting to get more than a little frustrated and, and maybe even edgy with this guy. Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now baptism, uh, frankly, baptism was not really the issue here for the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites. Their big question about baptism is really pertaining to him, it's the why. And under whose authority are you doing this? Their big question, why, whose authority are you doing it? Back then, baptism was practiced by a number of different people within the Jewish community. Some baptized if they had been converted to Judaism. Some uh, were baptized just as an act of spiritual washing or cleansing there were some from a a certain monastic community in Qumran who believed it set them apart as a special end times group they even cited Ezekiel uh, chapter 36 verse 25 then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols so it wasn't that baptism was say uncommon But the Baptist understood really what was behind it and what they were getting at. So John answered them, verse 26, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now at first glance, John's response might have sounded a a little strange. I mean, it doesn't seem to be very direct or clear, but what he is doing is he is answering this question of authority. He's making the point that while while he's basically baptizing with water, the implication is that there is someone else who will be offering a different kind of baptism. And of course, we know he's referring to Jesus, the Word. But he describes this person back to this delegation and this person's authority. And he does it in four ways. First, he says that this person stands among them and yet they do not know him. In other words, Jesus has already shown himself, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is dwelling among them. The Baptist has already identified him to the people as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, God the Father again has publicly declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so even if these leaders have heard of this man, Jesus, they certainly don't know him in any deeper sense. They don't know him as the Son of God. Secondly, the Baptist identifies this person specifically as a he. Thirdly, when we see this phrase, it is he who comes after me. The Baptist is the herald announcing the coming king, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, God's son, God in human flesh. The Baptist comes first, followed by the Messiah, who is the Christ and the prophet. And then fourth and lastly, this one who comes after the Baptist comes with greater authority than the Baptist. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now think about it. Who was it that untied people's sandals? If you were a guest and you were showing up to somebody's house, right, it would be your servant. Or, or I would suppose that if you uh, didn't have enough money to have a servant, it would be you that would be untying the guest's sandals, removing the sandals from their presumably dirty feet, and then washing their feet and applying oil to their feet. In other words, the Baptist is saying, I'm, I am am low guy on the totem pole, okay? I am low guy compared to this person who comes after me of 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 whom I am not worthy to even act as a servant and care for this person's feet. Now, this obviously demonstrates just tremendous humility of the Baptist, because do you remember what Jesus said of him in Luke seven and verse 26? Jesus says to the crowds, but what did you go out to see? Referring to John, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, before we wrap things up this morning, friends, we have one last verse. We need to look at verse 28. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where Jesus was baptizing. So the author, author John here, inserts some context, which helps us to know where this encounter between the Baptist and the delegation took place geographically, which then helps us to understand things chronologically. You see, when the Synoptics, the other Gospels, first write about the adult Baptist, he's at the Jordan River baptizing people. And this is where the people were coming out to him and and where Jesus first showed up and where Jesus, of course, was baptized. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus after that out into the desert for him to be tempted by the devil. Following that temptation, the Scripture tells us that Jesus then goes north. To Galilee. And during this time, the Baptist leaves the Jordan River area and he heads west to Bethany. And what we also see here with this mentioning is the fact that John is placing Jesus and Jesus' narrative in an historical context. He's giving us very specific places, he's giving us specific names. In other words, this really happened. It can't be said, well, this is some allegory or this is just some fable, some made-up story. No, I'm giving you time and place so that you know it really happened in the context of, of the history of the world. Now, really quick, just turn with me to Matthew 3. Just jump back to Matthew 3 real briefly. Because we also might want to ask the question, well, at least I did. This is something that I was thinking about in my own study. But if the Baptist is now not near the Jordan River baptizing, what's he doing? I mean, isn't, isn't that what he's supposed to do? Isn't that is what he's called to do, baptize people? If he's not near water, how's he going to do that? Well, the thrust of his ministry, it goes back right here to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1-3, to three, which tells us this. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. So he was a preacher. First and foremost. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's preaching about the kingdom of heaven being at hand. That is to say, yes, he is announcing the coming of Messiah, Jesus. And he is calling people to repentance in preparation for his coming. That's the thrust of his ministry. Yes, then he would baptize them. And that was also a part of it. But this preaching and calling people to repentance and preparation for the Messiah was key. In fact, at some point, he even makes it his mission to call out Herod the Tetrarch. Right, the, the head governor of the region, he calls him out on his sin of adultery by taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for himself. And of course, John the Baptist in doing so, that's what got him killed. But he could preach anywhere as anyone, everyone needed to hear this announcement, including those in Bethany. So that is why he's there. Now what can we, what can we glean from today's message from this time in our our text in John 1 nineteen to twenty eight? We see certainly from the Baptist a willingness to be bold. He doesn't flinch when the establishment comes calling, he doesn't cower under their scrutiny he doesn't clam up when confronted or, you know, head for the hills when he's challenged. He knows unwaveringly who he is and what God has called him to do. And he does so unapologetically. And I just think, yeah, is that us? Is that us? Is that us as individuals? Is that us as a church i think we do pretty well with that as a church but maybe there are times for each of us in our own hearts where it's tough it's difficult out there in this wicked world we live in that seems more and more against the gospel to be strong to be true to be bold Secondly, we we also see, as I mentioned, the tremendous humility in John the Baptist, spiritual humility, the attitude of, I must decrease while Jesus must increase. And how many of us have this kind of humility in our service to the Lord, and especially our service through the local church? I think too often we maybe want the fun jobs, we want the easy jobs, we want the jobs that are, that are, you know, going to get us noticed or give us the pat on the back or that attaboy we've secretly been longing for when, frankly, we just need to be willing to serve wherever we're called to serve and even do the hard stuff, even do the messy stuff with no earthly credit. Thirdly, the Baptist is, we have to remember this, Fulfillment of prophecy. What he is saying, what he is doing, the fact that he is on the scene. He was prophesied back in Isaiah, then again by the angel Gabriel and his father. And now we see God's prophetic word fulfilled. It is coming to pass. It is happening right then and there in the historical context, real place and time. And what should this do for us? How should this affect us here in 2024? 2024. Now I've shared with this what I'm going to share with you before, but I'm going to do it again here. I think it's time to do it, and and it's it's these five benefits of biblical prophecy, and I and I get this from a, an author named Paul Benware in his book about prophecy, and and the first is this: why biblical prophecy and seeing prophecy fulfilled is important, because Bible prophecy reminds us that God is sovereign. It reminds us that He is on His throne no matter what we see that God does indeed have a plan we see that that plan is indeed going to come to pass and we have the benefit on numerous occasions of seeing prophecy fulfilled it's not something that we just have to trust and believe in and hope that it's really going to happen for like Jesus's return no we see fulfilled prophecies and this is especially helpful in a day and age that yes it does seem to be filled with wickedness does it not It does seem to be a a time when, when wrong is right and right is wrong. And during the most difficult and tumultuous of times, what a comfort to know that God is still sovereign and that God is indeed on his throne. Secondly, Bible prophecy also reminds us that God is good. It reminds us that God is good. Everything that God does in His sovereign plan is for His glory, but it's also for the good of God's people. That's you and I. It is for our good. The Baptist heralding the coming of of Jesus is good for us because in Jesus, now we have the way of salvation, we have the gospel the word of god incarnate and then the gospel passed down through the saints to us and we get to get to fully understand our predicament that we are sinners that our sins have consequences death Hell, the lake of fire, but that God so loved his creation, he so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him, Jesus Christ, would not perish, would not go to hell, would not suffer for eternity in the lake of fire, but would have everlasting life. This is the the, the great hope that we have, friends. And I encourage you, if you have not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do so right now. Right now, you could be praying in your own heart, Lord Jesus, I am sorry. I am, I am sorry for my sin. And I believe that, 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 yes, God sent his son. God sent Christ to die for me. And not just to die for me, but to resurrect from the dead three days later so that I know I have that great promise and hope of resurrection. And then furthermore, that I then get the Holy Spirit to live inside of me, walking with me, directing me, guiding me all the rest of my days. Do that right now, friends, if you need to do that. But God is indeed good. Thirdly, Bible prophecy should then motivate us towards holy living. If indeed we know that we have a sovereign God whose intentions toward his people are always good, shouldn't this bring about worship? From us, thankfulness, praise, obedience. Because we see prophecy fulfilled in the Baptist announcing Jesus, our Savior and Lord who has forgiven our sins and promised us eternal life. Shouldn't, therefore, we have a a new desire to live according to his ways, to live according to the law of Christ, obedience towards him? Shouldn't that be our heart our desire our mantra fourth Bible prophecy helps us to establish proper priorities that being said how do I actually do this you think back to the Baptist the man had his priorities straight if living out his God ordained role meant that he would have camel skins for clothes and eat bugs and put his neck on the line for the Lord literally what should that say about our priorities I mean, if God is doing all he is to bring about what he has ordained and told us these things, shouldn't we, through our obedience, establish proper priorities? And I say this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. We need to stop living for this world and we need to be more focused on the next And lastly, Bible prophecy, friends, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. Just think of how many people live in the world without hope. True hope. Eternal hope. Oh, they live there with kind of a worldly kind of hope, as in, I, I hope this happens. I, I hope I get this, or I get that, or I, I hope, 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 as in maybe? Possibly? It's an uncertain kind of hope. It's not hope based on promises from our eternal creator. While the unbeliever is only wishful thinking about the future, the Christian has a confident, expectation built on rock solid. Hang your hat on, take to the bank promises. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these promises. We thank you for prophecy. We thank you that we are so blessed on this side of the cross to see so many prophecies having been so perfectly fulfilled, not the least of which is John the Baptist and what he is preaching and proclaiming to the people about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And now, Lord, we have those tremendous promises of Jesus' return to look forward to. Lord, not not maybe promises, but rock-solid promises from you, our God who cannot lie. We thank you for this, we praise you for this, and in your son Jesus' name. We all pray. Everybody said Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright by the Lochman Foundation.